Okay, welcome to the first Transatlantic Conversation podcast. Today we will talk at least partly about the new Biden administration in the US, but also developments on global um, scale and how we see some of those from the German perspective. Um, we have several texts that some of us at least partly read, and I will just start with one of small parts of one of the texts. Let's listen into it. Let's go. As always, black people waited longer than others to vote and were more likely to have their votes challenged. They were more likely to be suffering or dying from COVID-19 and less likely to be able to take time away from work. The historical protection of their right to vote has been removed by the Supreme Court's 2013 ruling in Shelby County v. Holder and states have rushed to pass measures of kind that historically reduced voting by the poor and communities of color. So this is a topic we also mentioned in different talks already that um, by creating narratives Uh, there are also always winners and losers. And uh, here we just heard that especially minorities were those who suffered the most from telling, uh, no, we won't allow uh, early voting. We don't want to allow uh, votes by post. Um, and I know it's hard to comment on that yet, but if you want to add your ideas, uh, Already, and I think that to do so. from the uh, American Abyss article by John Snyder, isn't it? Yes. And uh, as far as I know, he, uh, or as far as I understood it, he divides the Republican Party into gamers and breakers. And uh, basically the gamers being the Republicans that try to stay in power whilst having uh, less than half of the votes of the country by gerrymandering, which is, uh, 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 and uh, like stuff like that and getting, or gerrymandering, I don't know if I should explain it or not. Are you familiar with the term? Okay. Um, and uh, pushing minorities and majorities around the country. And uh, I think by that he describes what the, gamers used to do or how it what kind of influence it had on the black people but it also highlights that there's not only a political disadvantage that they have but also a social or like basically human or like how, how, do you, how would you say it like the fact that they can get access to medicare since they suffered more from COVID-19 I think it's also interesting that that could possibly be connected to the gerrymandering and uh, being pushed in certain parts of certain cities and uh, stuff that goes on, or like stuff that comes with the gerrymandering. Yeah. Maybe to add on the uh, gamers and breakers, just this short uh, quote, also from the same te text, For some Republicans, the invasion of the Capitol must have been a shock or even a lesson. For the breakers, however, 
it may have been a taste of the future. Afterward, eight senators and more than 100 representatives voted for the lie that had forced them to flee their chambers. Just to put that in, in context, I don't know um, if, like, if, well, as you know about on 6th of January, uh, many people entered the capital uh, and um, people see that as a queue. Um, but there's not only people entered the capital, but also afterwards, senators and representatives voted that uh, the whole election was wrong. <clears throat> and that, I don't know if it never happened, happened but at least uh, for many years, uh, no one in this more generally ceremonial um, gathering voted against an election. So um, just that ben as, as Benedict says or uh, said, um, there were people that really want to go through with it, even within the the, the the political parties, and that was something that worried many. Uh, were more worried about politicians being. Um, or wanting to do such a thing than uh, just citizens going into the capital. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's the time now to maybe we'll bring in a discussion, but since both topics came up, geomandering and the, the, the storm on the, on the capital, I had a discussion with a friend about it who was very critical with the way that German media was perceiving that event in Washington. Uh, he said that the wording and the framing of, of German media with regards to, uh, to DC, to Washington, was a little bit too much, was a little bit over the top. That was not an event of threat to, 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 to democracy or, or, or similar headlines, which were, well, which were used by German media. He said that was all over the top. If you look at just basic frauds in democracy that the USA is, is having, such as geomandering, such as donations to parties without limits or without transparency, or such as um, healthcare systems, such as uh, Abu Ghraib and secret military courts, all of that are undemocratic institutions and, and undemocratic happenings. So to, to, to come now and to, to now try to bring up the, the threat of democracy because some rioters ran into capital and I'm, I'm not trying to, to relativate the, the symbolic power that this, this happening had, just to put it into context to other frauds of democracy that the USA is maybe experiencing. Um, he was just feeling that German media was was just being over the top when when they were re reporting from what happened in DC uh, and, and bringing up geomandering. So I just thought maybe this would be an idea that we could we could sting onto whether the USA has way bigger problems than a couple of writers running into parliament and eventually, well, some might argue it was luck, some might argue it was strategic, nothing happened, right? So, well, nothing happened. It was a symbolic act that happened, but uh, elect electoral processes have not been disturbed or, or such as. Um, so 
So he was bringing up that point, and I, I thought it was quite interesting. I personally would not agree 100% because I think it's not a, a black and white game, uh, and something can be a threat to democracy while there are also undemocratic happenings going on. And I don't think it's, it's either you are 100% democracy and only then your democracy can be threatened. I, I, don't, I wouldn't agree with that, with that approach, but I found that, that thought interesting. And, since both topics came up now, I thought I'd bring it in. Well, uh, to uh, chime into that, I think that's really an interesting thought, but I think if you just, like the way your friend or the comparison was made is that there are these certain uh, real democracy fraud threats, like the ones you mentioned, uh, the big packs, I think it's called when with the... Uh, huge corporations being able to basically uh, support a political party without any regulations and uh, stuff like that, or the uh, military courts that aren't democratically legitimized. But uh, I don't think you can uh, compare them to the uh, storming of the capital to just a bunch of rioters going in there. I think you have to also put that into context, which was that current, like the sitting president, or at that point still sitting president, uh, had a speech which uh, inspired all these people to go there. And he actively rallied the people and uh, encouraged them to go there. And I think uh, since that president still had, I think 47% of voters in the last election, so 47, or like a, let's say a huge portion of the country behind him, and that he's able to get people to do such things, it's quite a threat to democracy. Or actually, like it, it shows how big the threat is that he's able to do that. And therefore, I think the language used in German media is okay to describe that and not over the top, from my opinion. What's interesting is that um, German media was focused on the people writing into the capital and it was really one week only this, even though there were also uh, Corona went on and we know that for one year it was nearly the only thing that men uh, was mentioned in the news, at least in the first minutes always. So that really means something. And um, what I also thought was interesting is that people use uh, January 6th as they use 9-11. So they really try to put it in a real big picture uh, and, and maybe also overestimate the meaning of it. And this might be something we just know in, in 10 years uh, because one of the texts is, is about how lies develop in a country and how a narrative uh, goes on and on. And, and the narrative of having a wrong election and Trump actually winning the election and then senators and representatives supporting that. So it's not only one politician who plays this card of lying, uh, but, but uh, he gets support from others who also um, themselves have support from different parts of the country, etc. So um, this might be the bigger problem that even within the democratic establishment or democratic meaning uh, not the party, but uh, those who were voted democratically, um, 
that they also strengthened this lie. And this might be something that in four years, in eight years, in 12 years still uh, might play a role in the next elections when once again, one or two states, there are things that could be questioned. So the democracy, the, the whole voting process itself uh, might never be again accepted by a larger portion of, of society. And that's something I don't know. I, I, in, in this sense, I think it wasn't mentioned too much in, in, in Germany in the news. In Germany, it was only about how, I don't know, I think 800 people entered the capital. And, and then afterwards, we also know that representatives and senators feared for their life. So that's nothing that was there from the first day in the news, but then afterwards, uh, representatives told their story and then uh, also the picture changed in some way. Uh, I want to agree on that point because I really think that it could be, yeah, it could be a complicated topic in the future because every vote will be or might be different than it was now, you know, yeah, or in the future it will be a bit different because because just how Trump and all the Republicans or all the guys who followed him reacted was like, I think it, like it's never been before. So I think, especially how the media reacted to it, a lot of guys could think or could act the same way in the future if they would lose the vote, for example. But on the other hand, it's, I think it's just going to be interesting because I think it could go either way because you never know if the next Republican is, let's put it that way, that or as crazy as Trump is, you know, reacting on things like that because you also never had a guy like him as a president before, you know. So I don't really know if, if it's going to be the same way in like four years or eight years if a Democrat wins over a Republican or if it's going to be like like before maybe, you know, I think it's going to be interesting because, yeah, because it was just so, so weird this time. And I don't know, for me, it was just unbelievable. This guy is just standing there saying, no, I won, but <laughs> he obviously lost, you know, I just saw an interview earlier today and it was the same way. He was still, I think he had his first speech to, today or yesterday. And it was just, I don't know, I think it's always just, for me, it's more more comedy than actual input he's given. But on the other hand, so many people are believing in the stuff, believing in the stuff he's saying, which brings people to go yeah, to the capital or do things which maybe as a German or for, I don't know, people from other places in the world are kind of unimaginary, you know? So I think it's going to be an interesting time in the next years to just watch also watch the US and the US politics and see how they react on things now. Well, maybe just to take the point of the devil's advocate here and go a little bit more in another direction. Maybe one could argue that the election of Joe Biden now and um, was, was the perfect incident to show and prove that American democracy is working perfectly fine. Looking at different uh, definitions of democracy at least once you'll find the definition that democracy means that a minority can enact themselves to become the majority. So that there is the institutional context for minorities to, to, to gather, to, to make um, 
well, to, to vote for the streets, to get the public opinion, the, the court of public opinion on their side, and, and through, well, terms of, of, of Wahlkampf, of, uh, I don't know what the, what the term is in English, um, well, well to, to use all those means and enact, enact themselves as a majority. And, and this is what happened, right? Trump was in, in, in power for four years, Democrats were in the minority, they use the institutional means that the US Constitution gives them and enacted themselves to become the to become to become the majority again in the country. They had a change of parliament and they had a change of presidency. And of course, on a personal note, Trump was being really childish and was being really immature with how the how the election went on. And yet there was, well, for me at least, and I think for a lot of other people, no real doubt that he would leave office. I mean, sure, there were like those horror scenarios that what happens if he has the military on his side and what happens if they come again, back again. Then again, you have like a very settled constitution, an institutionalized constitution, which has different checks and balances systems there and different responsibilities for different kinds of use of power. So actually, so, well, just to be the devil's advocate here, right? Um, some might argue this was the perfect example for how US democracy is working exactly how it should. The minority Democrats became the majority through elections. They have a new president in power now, old president is gone. There's even an uh, impeachment uh, process going on against him. So, some might argue, what do you want? How is our democracy fragile, right? Because we, of course, it's always something different if you have a bipartisan system such as the US and obviously one has to win and it's a 50-50 chance. Um, but still, if you adapt that model of the minority being able to enact themselves as a majority, uh, some might argue it worked perfectly fine in the US. Yeah, Should just to, oh, sorry. Yeah, go, you, go, you want to go, go ahead? ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, just to, uh, I, th I think those are some interesting points. And I, I think they, if you look at it from a very basic level and don't go into details as much and only take into definition of democ democracy that the minority has to have the ability to become the majority, I think you're actually right. But I think uh, democracy, like, uh, I know that that's, I'm arguing against the devil's advocate's opinion, not yours. Uh, so, uh, but I'm just like for easiness sake, I'll just say your opinion okay uh, just that's uh, not a problem uh, nothing taken on a personal note. okay okay uh, just uh, against your definition of democracy i think it also uh, has to have a certain political culture in order to work uh, there need to be certain institutions in place that uh, should generally be accepted or if they're not accepted basically the democracy can't work such as courts of law the legislative houses uh, i don't know branches of the executive and so on and uh, I think that there was a huge disregard for these institutions coming with the cry for election fraud because Trump basically uh, put himself above all institutions and everything that's factual and uh, by that and his vote is following which is also a point the article raises which I found to be very interesting basically it was that if you have if you want to follow everything Trump says, since everything he says or like a lot of the stuff he says is wrong and so contradictory, you basically have to take him as the only source of truth because 
everything else wouldn't make sense. So once you have people following them to that extent, they also won't follow the democratic institutions anymore. Yeah. And uh, the article also said that some my, some Republican like they draw a really dark scenario for the future, which would be that a breaker candidate narrowly loses the election in uh, 2024 and uh, the Republicans control the House, like I saw the Senate and the House uh, at that time, and that they then would decide to challenge the election since they also have the people in the street rallying up and going against the election and it would be very easy to overturn and like let's really hope that does not happen but if that what would be oh, if that would be the case i think people would look back at it and say uh by not accepting his de election defeat trump uh, basically built the first stone for that new uh, election challenge so uh I think if you look at it under, or with a little more detailed view and uh, also really shed some light to the aspects I just mentioned, I think you could say the US democracy has a huge problem. Let me just share what you just paraphrased because I also thought it was an imp uh, important aspect. The force of a big lie resides in its demand that many other things must be believed or disbelieved. To make sense of a world in which the 2020 presidential election was stolen requires distrust not only of reporters and of experts, but also of local, state and federal government institutions, from poll workers to elected officials, homeland security and all the way to the Supreme Court. It brings with it of necessity a conspiracy theory. Imagine all the people who must have been in on such a plot and all the people who would have had to work on the cover-up. And I think that also makes the devil's case because it shows that all those institutions, they worked. And that's why there was no big fraud, at least. Of course, some minor things always might happen, but there was no big voter fraud. Especially this election shows how things get to a normal democracy also in the sense of the majority winning in, 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 in the United States because the, the 2016 election was actually the minority if you just count the voters uh, but still the system makes that the Republican Party won. So um, the US system is complicated so it's hard to um, from just one example Uh, decide if it's working or not working and uh, I think the first quote that we heard about uh, minorities, black voters, poor, uh, poor communities, that actually shows where uh, the, the US democracy might, ne might need to improve because uh, democracy also means one person, one vote and every vote counts the same uh, and that that might not be the case in, in the, the system right now. If we want, we can also turn a little bit to a more from the outward uh, looking perspective because um, it's one thing how people in the United States realize their own uh, democracy or how we think about democracy from um, 
US perspective. But I think it's also interesting how different parts of the world, different countries who as such have a different idea of how democracy or how uh, politics should work, how they will use the big lie or how just use how things just worked out in the US. So let us listen something about how the US sees itself as the hegemon and how they want to come back to the top of the table. With US primacy, the world is a place where differences can be resolved peaceably. Without it, the planet descends into a dog, eat dog, might makes right environment. The question for Gates is not whether the United States should reign, but how it should do so. A defter hand, he hopes, will restore the country to its necessary role. This restoration would, as Biden has put it, place America back at the head of the table. I don't know if you, uh, probably not, but I, I just listened a bit into the this year's Munich uh, Security Council, I think. Um, and, and there the, the narrative was always uh, the US is back and then uh, other politicians said thank you for the US to being back and leading again etc uh, so this is also interesting how for, there were four years the US obviously was not leading because they were focusing on their own turf uh, but now they're back and they want to lead again uh, what is great for, in, in some sense because it's important to Uh, go together uh, working against climate change etc but on the other hand in four years it seems that at least in some parts of the world things haven't gone on in the normal way because everyone was waiting for the US to be back and last year Biden was also in the at the uh, Munich Security I don't know is it council conference, Munich Security Conference, and he, he said uh, the US will be back. And then this year uh, he was thanked for, for keeping his promise. So this is also very interesting on how democracy works in the US, how it uh, affects the world, and then how other politicians feel the necessity to, to Yeah, maybe wait for, for, for US democracy in some, some sense. Uh, I just think it's like, um, I mean, at just four years uh, we have uh, spent without the US on top. So maybe it would take more time to find a kind of new leader for the world. But the US back in just four years. So it's like nobody uh, claimed the chair and they go back on the chair. But I think it's also a useful thing. I mean, they have like a um, super strong economy and um, they're a powerful military. So maybe there are in the most way, probably not in every way, a good leader uh, of the world, better than Chinese. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I don't, I don't even think there is a diff or another leader than the US because like in a, in a democratic way, because Worlds is there. You could, you can't take Russia. You can't take China as a leader. So basically, there is just in you know, an economic point of view, and in so many different other points of view, 
there is just the US to be a leader because when you don't have the US, there's so many other countries, even Germany, who are maybe powerful, but there's no one who's big enough or powerful enough to be a real leader over, over other countries. Let's put it that way. And I think that's, a, that's hard. And if the US is back, let's say back, and uh, yeah, back in their role as a leader, I think that's what everyone follows because like Lucas said, I think especially in economic, the economic point of view, it's just the most powerful country or democratic powerful country in the world. And you need a country like that to be on your side, you know? And I think that's, so, that's why it's so important for all the other countries like us to uh, that the US is back now. Well, uh, I think that's quite an interesting point. Like uh, I see that it's, for example, like from a Western and democratic point of view, I guess it's better to have the US as the superpower or the hegemonial of the world. Let's put it this way. But I, I'm not really sure if they're still fit to fill that role. Uh, for example, looking at the historic implications of that role, uh, in the article it mentions that uh, in 1939, uh, some uh, London representative came over to the US and basically asked them to uh, take that role from Great Britain and uh, President Roosevelt at first didn't like it, but uh, then when France was also taken over by Nazi Germany and uh, the Second World War kept going on, uh, they eventually decided to take on that role. And in 1945, they basically had military implications all over the world and they kept them since then. But uh, they, one reason they were able to keep them is because uh, in the article, it says that the US economy was four times stronger than, or, or stronger than, sorry, not four times stronger, stronger than all the uh, economies coming after that combined or all the top five co economies coming after that combined. And I don't think the US can uh, still keep that up since I don't think the US economy is stronger than, for example, China and India combined or China and Russia combined. Or, and I think China is actually on pace to uh, beat the US economy, if I'm correct, but uh, happy to be corrected. And I think it takes a certain amount of, uh, yeah, basically economic power to also keep up that kind of defense spending and uh, being the policemen all over the world and uh, if they can't keep it up it will basically lead to the US only being able to intervene when the national interest of the US is attacked which by definition or like by just the fact that they can only intervene when the national interest of the US is attacked would make them a bad policeman of the world since you wouldn't want a policeman who only intervenes when his own interests are attacked yeah that's basically my point uh, so i'm not quite sure if the us uh, can be back as it was and i don't know if it should be but maybe they should cut back on uh, defense spending and uh, just try to keep uh, russia and china in check and by that we can also have a peaceful triple hegemonial world order i don't know yeah that's uh, basically also like it's kind of taken from the article, but I found that point to be very interesting.
I think that if you look at hegemonial powers, um, I would personally divide the influence of the United States in three sectors. You have the economical hegemonial power, you have the cultural slash political power, and you have the military power of, um, of the United States. And from my point of view, I would argue that with regards to military power, they are still the hegemonial power in the United in the world. Well, it's not just their army, but it's also their entire branch of industry, which is connected to, to military and military spendings. Um, with regards to economical hegemonial status, um, I would probably argue that they are losing their, their status. I wouldn't say that they have lost it already because even during times when Donald Trump was president, they had still corporations and companies seated in the United States, which were dominant in all sectors regarding technology, regarding finance. So in, in, in certain important broad, uh, industries, the United States still seats the most important players in the industry. And therefore, I would argue their economical status hasn't changed no matter who's seated in the White House. Well, with regards to political and cultural um, status in the world, I would say they have lost immensely in the last four years. This is due to, first, of course, the backup of Donald Trump of multilateralism, um, being who supplies the third world and developing countries with, with vaccines, with medical products. Who does that? Well, we see nowadays that China and Russia is doing this uh, nearly uh, most of the nations in Africa are being um, supplied and import nowadays the vaccines coming from, from that part of the region. Uh, same for infrastructural projects that are being conducted there. All of that is financed from another part of the world, um, especially, and that's the change with, with regards to how it was 30, 40 years ago. Also in cultural hegemonial status, I think the USA is losing a lot. You have, just as a very stupid and, and childish example maybe, but you have TikTok which is used by billions of people nowadays and is a Chinese software developer. Uh, you have, um, you will find it on, on Facebook and Instagram and all those platforms that you'll see more and more of Chinese or Asian content uh, on, on, those, on, those, on those platforms. So in, in that regard, in cultural and political hegemonial power, I would say they have, they have lost it already and they will be losing it even more in future. Uh, this is not only with regards to their role in international conferences and multilateralism as such, but also with regard to just other arising and emerging cultural powers, such as China, who now after having had an immense economical boom, just focus on cultural, cu cultural expansion nowadays. You'll find Confucius uh, centers all over the world nowadays. The number of, of, those, of those institutions have doubled, tripled over the last years. So they now spend or expand their cultural influence as well. So I would say with regard to cultural and political influence, they, they have lost it and they will be losing it in future even more. Uh, economically speaking, I think they still will be top of the world. Uh, since like the most important key factors or key industry players are still seated in the United States and militarily they are still for me untouched. Well, I do, I'm not really into, into military or security policies at, at all. That's not like my field of profession or something, but from my just amateur perspective, I would argue that in military regards, we still heavily depend on them and can trust them. So um 
their hegemonial status in, in that regard is untouched for me. But with cultural and political status, they'll, they have lost it and they will be losing it in future. That's what I think on the personal opinion is. Um, yeah, I think those are some really interesting points and I really like the way you divided uh, the parts of hegemonial power. I just have like a, basically a question for you, like the, something that came up my mind. Uh, so it's a question for everybody. Like, how would you say these uh, parts of hegemonic powers are connected to each other? Because I think they all kind of enable and disable each other. Because, or like, uh, if you are not the hegemonial power in one field, you can't be, it basically disables your ability to be the hegemonial power for in that field for a long time. Which, uh, if I put it to an example, I mean, it's, for example, as you said, I think the, um, military uh being the milit main military power basically uh also commands which part of political culture and cultural goods in generally are spread throughout the world and how good your economy is also i think I, i'm also not an expert in military spending and military politics but i think the you know, military basically also heavily depends on your economy since if you don't have any uh household income which comes from the economy to basically spend it on a huge uh, military, I think in the, in the long term, it will also go down. So my point kind of being that there could be a domino effect, like if they lose the cultural point, uh, I think the economies of the other countries could get stronger and then like a domino, the economy would fall and then the military hegemonial position would fall. Or that's something that just came on my mind. What do you think about it? Well, I think that's right. I think those three branches are really connected to each other. And I think you see that when you look back in, in history, uh, after 1990-1991, when the Western world had won over Soviet Union, you saw that um, you saw McDonald's and Hollywood movies all over the world. You had Metallica as the American metal band playing concerts in Moscow. You had like the extreme Well, that was the result of a military hegemonial status enacted and cultural hegemonial status and coming with that cultural hegemonial status, um, having US companies being abroad and spreading fastly and vastly abroad. You had, of course, that economical um, hegemonial power coming with you. So I would agree with you. Those are interconnected. And the division that I just made is artificial. It's like not a real division that you will find in real life. Um, But yet with regards to the second point that you said, um, how our military and, and economic, economical power, how, how they are intervened, um, I'm, I might be disagreeing with you on this point because I think that economical power from the United States is nowadays especially coming from their finance and their tech industry. And those industries of course have uh, intersections with military and military spendings as well, but those private corporations um, they they make profits other than producing weapons, right? So the entire Silicon Valley is making profits with data, is making profits with surveillance. Um, the entire finance industry, um, of course, is interconnected with, with military spendings as well, but they are everywhere. They're like in every branch, they're in every industry, and it's not just military. So I think because they are, there's a, a bigger diversification of income in the economical situation of the United States, other than in the 50s and the 60s, where everything that you gained was basically military 
industry, right? Um, so we have, we've, I think we've lost that connection. We now have a more diversified field of economy uh, being finance and tech industry as the main carriers of that in industry. And therefore, I, I think you can make that division. But of course, that division is artificial. I would agree with you. This is all connected. Uh, you, you, this is what imperialism is, right? You, you, you expand militarily, you expand your culture, having like new markets that you, that you sort of won. You can have your, your companies um, spending products and services uh, over there. So of course, your, your economy will, on the, will rise on the same scale. But I think that division is artificial uh, just to, to like, be a little bit more differentiated where they are losing power, where they are maybe gaining power, maybe where they have lost power already. Yeah, that's what I meant. And what's also important to remember is that our society is much more interconnected with US society than, for example, with uh, China society. It's, It starts with us knowing to speak English, but as I think no one speaks Chinese or Mandarin. Um, it goes on by the, the historical interconnection from the Second World War, how the US supported the, the rebuilding of, of Germany or uh, in fact of, of many parts of Europe. So for, from a European perspective, we might not even realize how things have changed, even though this four years for sure uh, made a difference because we just couldn't understand the administration that well anymore. Of course, there were also uh, beforehand, there were uh, differences and already with wars the US started, many Europeans didn't understand, or at least in Germany, there were uh, larger groups who, who disagreed, though, We don't know exactly how people in, in, in African countries realize how China has supported them in the last 20 years, how they built harbors, etc., how they even own the harbors and how this will make a difference in, in the uh, upcoming years. And then there's also the population of, of China that is so big that only this makes a difference already on, on how things develop. For me, it's important that we might even try not to have this division into countries. So we say the US needs to take care that Russia and, and China doesn't develop to be the new hegemon or the new hegemons. And I understand completely that the, the, the systems are so differently and uh, there's much less freedom in, in, in other countries just because uh, the surveillance is their state-owned in some sense. So I understand that this is not nearly our system and also not where we want to head to, but on a more personal level, uh, why one Chinese person is different from one person from the US or one person from Russia. This, I, I don't see a, a major difference on, on the, this more personal level. And then I, I ask myself, is, is, there, is there not a way to also implement those this equality also on the state's level and to lessen this uh, it's not nationalist but still we always talk in 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 about nation and and how one nation uh, develops and 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 makes a difference for for other parts 
So this is something I try to find new ideas. Well, I think that's a uh, that's a really interesting point, and also like a and a question that like there there's no valid reason why uh, it should or let's uh, uh, I'm a rephrase uh, from a philosophical or just like uh, looking at a human uh, kind of view. There's no reason for these uh, different nations to exist, but I think. Uh, there are struck like most nations, or at least, uh, or actually, I'd say most nations in the world. They uh, had a huge growing process, which took a lot of time, merged cultures together, and uh, by the uh, and then these cultures developed, and they developed in different directions. And I think it's really hard to break open these structures and uh, these cultural differences even though we live in a more globalized world than ever, I still think that uh, you would have to basically uh, start at a very, very early level of the man's development or mankind's development, basically, uh, and uh, put it all on the same, uh, with the same instincts or same uh, aspects of culture that are, being the uh, most relevant ones in said part of the world. And I think that's just because of uh, the different geological implications that there are and uh, the way uh, people have to work together in different parts of the world. Uh, for example, in, uh, I don't know, in let's say in Mediterranean, uh, in the Mediterranean area, you could easily go off by yourself just very simple example from a cultural standpoint, you can easily go off by yourself and say, I don't need the community. I'm just going to have my own uh, farm and live happily. But if you live in a more extreme climate, you can't do that. You're basically dependent on getting together with other people. So like, uh, for example, let's say uh, if you're in a very, very cold area, you have to stick together and uh, form a culture. I think these kind of issues can be tackled in a globalized world, but I think it's uh, still very hard and to find a common denominator for all these people to bring them together and not develop different cultures, which for me would be the first step to break open these nation, national borders uh, is really, really hard. Uh, I hope my point kind of came across. Uh, basically it's that the cultures uh, create the nations and uh, the the way the cultures are created is also deeply enrooted in the geopolitical content, context of uh, one's place where he grows up or he or she grows up. Yeah. I mean, on an organizational level, this is completely true. And, and of course, uh, it's hard to imagine how we organize small-scale projects on a global level, but then they go back to very local communities that, that have to deal with those. But the narrative of nations and to create differences, this is something that might come from cultural and even geographical differences, but they are also supported nowadays because there's gain for some people. And, and of course, to, to have 
strict outward borders, not borders in a geographical way, but just to say this is our group. This also helps to keep people together. But for example, one of the texts, and I won't, I have this also play, but I think this is a short one. There it says, after 9-11, Bush asks why people, or why Al-Qaeda hates the US. And then he says, it's because we love freedom. And now hate is a, a strong word, and this is also a special case. But also, if, if we just go on, on a more abstract level, to say that differences between countries are there because one country doesn't accept the freedom of the other one or one group doesn't like the freedom of the other one. Sometimes it feels that this is only to show differences and in fact there are other reasons. And I, for, for, for me it's, it's funny how since maybe the last 10 years we often hear that the US focus has turned to the Pacific and China is growing and first the US and, and the West wanted to include China into the market and by that China changed also its, its political system. And nowadays it's, politicians realize that China won't change because they're already strong enough to develop their own ways but then it's hard to come together. And, and I don't know the answer how to come together, but I, I, I have the sense that it's not the prior priority of many politicians, but also not of many societies to, to try to come together. But maybe on some projects, because we realize that climate change is something really global. Uh, so there is something we need to work on together, uh, but even there, you can gain some personal uh, profit from that. So even there, it's hard to cooperate. Um, yeah. So you might have ideas how to bring countries together that seem to be not partners, but struggling for the first position, the pole position. I, I believe that maybe maybe the biggest issue countries have right now or also the states always in different terms because for example you just said um you just said some comparisons right now if i may put religion in into context i, I believe us as a western country or all the western countries also like the us always uh, obviously you always have your your people who are not like that but in general I believe that, for example, Germany or the U.S. are probably very tolerant uh, in case of religion. It doesn't really matter if you're Muslim or Jewish or Christ or whoever. And or some other countries are not. But on the other hand, for example, the issue for, uh, where I believe is, especially the U.S. has, is the tolerance to also take other countries and other cultures kind of opinion and mindset because the issue is that the US and us maybe too uh, always think that what we are doing is the best way to do it you know it's the right way to do it and I think that's also why so many countries are clashing with, with each other because 
let's say China, Russia, and the United States, uh, all have different ways to approach a thing or a topic or to deal with a crisis, uh, crisis it doesn't matter. And, but all of them think their way is the best and don't tolerate the other way, other country's opinion or uh, just, I don't know, try to work with it, you know? That's a, I think that's the biggest issue. I think that's a big issue of the US too, just in the culture and in politics because they think that we are powerful, we're the best country of the world, what we do is the right way. And if someone is not approaching their way, they're like the stupid ones. And I think that's a, yeah, a big issue. I think it's also hard for countries to, in some, in some topics, in some ways, to work with each other if both, if both parties think they're the best, you know, and no one is approaching the other one. You say interesting point, Yannick. I mean, uh, it's always about if you have a, maybe a discussion in, in, um, yeah, between two peoples, you always think your, your opinion is the, Yeah, maybe the best one, and I think it's always a way um, to yeah, to make some compromises to start a um, democratical process. Just I mean, if states do it, which other it's like top level um, democratic uh, democratic um, process. So yeah, I think it's um, it's a way of democracy um, between countries and not just inside the country. Maybe what is an approach for connecting countries again um, is economical integration. Uh, this is maybe an example which has been proven right in, in the history. Um, I think 80 years ago, no one would have seriously thought that we would call, we as Germans would call French people our neighbors and our friends, um, especially after what happened in two world wars in the beginning of the 20th century. And then just in 1954, when European free trade began and suddenly those countries were codependent on each other due to economical exchange, there was sort of an understanding that grew, um, that, that started to happen. You'll see probably a lot of history, a lot of examples throughout history. Um, Germany managed to sort of make their peace with Israel in the 50s with Konrad Adenauer sending US uh, sending German products to Israel and, and starting economical integration with the countries. You see that nowadays that uh, suddenly the Israelis and the Arab world are growing more together due to codependencies that they have and they see with each other and uh, economical integration starts to begin. This was an approach that uh, has been tried out and until now has been proven right to some extent to maybe reach an reach a system where there is such a strong codependency of the countries because one country is really good at that service, the other country is really good at that product or development of that product, or you have global global supply chains that just like a spider go all around the world and sort of make a codependencies, a codependency of all the countries with each other. So maybe that is an approach. However, I sometimes have the feeling that we see in Europe nowadays that that approach isn't or just works to a certain extent. If you pass that point, you'll see that there is not much more than economical interests combining and, and, and sort of making the connection. And once you reach that point, 
you have situations like nowadays where we have your member states of the European Union that that go into an open clash with other member states, or you have you have countries that even want to leave the union. Um, so maybe that just works to a certain extent, but it works to a certain extent, right? Um, so maybe that's the best that we got until now. But I'm open for any new ideas. Uh, just saying that this might be one approach to be taken when it comes to, well, not maybe dissolving nations. And uh, maybe I would agree with you, Benedict, on this point. I disagree with you, Benedict, that I think nations are very necessary and we need nations. Uh, also in future, we, we will always need someone to, um, to be the sovereign of the people. This is just an essential part of democracy. Uh, but this might be, economical integration might be a point too sort of get to that connection uh yeah to uh first answer your point i think uh i i think i also agree there with you that realistically speaking we always need nations and there will always be nations but i think if you just look at it from a philosophical point of view there could also be one sovereign for everybody that is democratically elected which is not realistic but uh that was uh i made that statement and that kind of context, just to put it into context. But I uh, think it's an interesting point you raised because I also wanted to talk about the codependencies and that this way the, uh, there's a certain common denominator that can be found between the countries. And by this way, they're forced to work together. But as you said, I, I don't think it always has historically proven to be uh, a good approach because uh, let's say you take the US partnership with Afghanistan about fossil fuels uh, they had this much in common uh, basically or they had one uh, strain that like if you have let's say five strings of uh, working together and one string of each country strings barely touch each other and everything else was far apart and I think uh, that it cannot only be economic but these economic uh, codependencies have to be again codependent on a certain cultural exchange and uh, getting to know each other and uh, also having a political exchange. And I think only then this could work and further improve. Uh, as you mentioned, the, in the European Union, it only works to a certain extent, but I also think that the European Union is trying to make it work a little more. Uh, for example, that uh, cultural exchange problems uh, programs like Erasmus or uh, certain, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, scholarships, I wanted to say, and uh, norms that, so that uh, the DINA norms or certain norms in Europe that a craftsman from Italy can also work in Bulgaria if he wanted to. Uh, and I think these are the steps that have to be taken and further be encouraged. Uh, in order to, or steps like these, uh, to kind of build onto these economic uh, codependencies. I agree with you that the economic codependencies basically have to be the first step or are the easiest first step if you ask me. But uh, I think you, it's important that both uh, countries agree to have a interest to build on these dependencies and uh yes yeah, um uh, i think uh if in 2017 the european 
Commission released the white paper with uh, different scenarios for the future of Europe. And I think some of these can be applied to the world. And uh, one of the scenarios was a Europe of multiple speeds, basically that the countries can, can decide how much uh, integration they want with each other. And uh, the basic level is economic, uh, on an economic level working together. And I think that uh, by kind of using this model, the world could come together a little more uh, certain countries like decide to step up that integration and step it up and step it up and then more and more join and step the integration up more and more. Oh yeah, I hope I got my, yeah, basically. So I think that's a way we could build on that just to add to that point. Do you think that the countries really got closer by compromise, taking the best of the other country, adapting the other country takes the best of the other country, etc. Or was it more a process of the stronger society, the stronger country, stronger culture integrated the other one so that, for example, Eastern Germany had to integrate into West Germany or with, French, uh, with France and, and Germany? Is it really just getting closer and, and also accepting differences without uh, wanting to change them, but just differences as uh, are as they are. And we go from that point uh, and accept that also some decisions might be different uh, and, and we don't stand on our point of saying uh, our way is the only way. I think that depends heavily on uh who you're dealing with as a, as a nation. Um, with regards to the example, Eastern Germany, Western Germany, of course, there was not, like the Eastern German authorities were not in a position to bargain about which constitution to take, which cultural approach to take. They were not in a position at all to, to, to bring that forward. And um, whereas when you look at the relationship between, I don't know, between Germany and the and the United States, you would argue that here maybe Germany is in the in the position where they are not as privileged to bargain uh, when it comes to to values or to to other aspects of culture. Um, Germany wasn't even able to say anything when Edward Snowden published that the entire American security system was spying on big parts of the world. Germany was, even though they had the political will to, to, to grant him asylum, was not doing it. Germany is not talking in the United Nations Security Council about, about well, unlawful actings of, of their partners. So I think it depends heavily on which stand you have in that relationship, whether it's an equal eye-to-eye -eye relationship or whether it is a relationship where the dependencies are rather concentrated on one side. But uh, I will take that point. I think it's uh, it's also made a difference between because I also liked the approach of Miran earlier. Uh, maybe having connections between countries uh, on an economical point of view, with because I think it's a dangerous bond and I think it's not a lasting bond. But I think it's an approach, and every approach to make something better is good. But there's also a difference between, let's say, two countries having an economical bond, but just benefit from each other in like a certain point. And once they lose that benefit, 
the bond is gone again, or they they don't have reason to be on a good good trade with each other, or to really have dependencies. And I think that's, for example, why France and, for example, Germany are maybe on a really good term because there's not one country who's much much more powerful than the other one, but I think it's maybe even brave, but you also need to be, to have a good connection, you need to kind of be, or show the other one your vulnerability and to maybe give, give away some dependencies and take some dependencies because now both countries are kind of, let's say, equally dependent on each other, which makes them a good partner because you don't have to be afraid to say something critical or positive because you know your partners like Miran said before if Germany says something against the states uh, now they they won't even do it because they're not in the position to bargain to really say something because they're just looking up to the more powerful country right now you know they're much more dependent than the US is from Germany so that's I think that's a dangerous part and that's where you have to go to maybe to have to try to get more dependencies from each other, to not have too many countries get too powerful. But I, that's why I also think the approach Benedict said uh, at the end, the European Union is having now, which you could maybe, yeah, bring to the entire world. I think it's not a bad idea, but I think that's also why it's not gonna work because not, there's no country in the world who is giving up that power. And you have to give up power to get to that point that everyone's kind of like working on that level with each other. I mean, in, in some sense, uh, Europe could or the EU could be an example because uh, obviously Germany is in some sense powerful, but it's small, so not so powerful in the end. Uh, and as the European Union, at least on the economic level, and that's also some area where the EU is actually The, the real sovereign that makes a difference if the EU bargains with the US that makes a difference if it's uh, Germany or even a smaller uh, European country for, for the US it makes not such a difference and if other parts of the world would also be able to find such agreements where they bundle their necessities and their interests to bargain together Of course, they need to interact and they need to create this interdependencies uh, between each other before, because if, if it's not in, for example, the African Union, if they don't have this cooperation in between them, they will always have difficulties to bargain hard to the outside. And we see that also with Europe. If, if the European Union doesn't agree on something internally, there's not no strong way To, uh, to act, for example, to the United States. And that's actually where we saw where the EU worked well together was with Brexit. Because there, at least uh, as far as we noticed, uh, the EU had its strategy and they stick to it and no country, uh, of course, there are always personal countries' interests but the EU accepted those interests and tried to integrate them in their uh, strategy as a whole. Uh, and just as such a working group, you really can get to something, I think.
and this would be an interesting development also for 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 other areas maybe because in fact uh, eastern asian countries they also would like to be able to bargain with with china in in more of an eye to eye way no for sure i totally agree the only difference is uh yeah countries also like the european union are unions of small and not powerful countries and countries like like you said like china or the us they won't join a union like that because they are already that powerful you know so countries like that will never or for now for, uh, will never uh, yeah, sign something or really come to a union or to to do something like that because on their own they're they're at least as powerful as the union itself, you know. So why they have no reason to to do it because they don't really benefit from it. Why should they? If we like, if we think about what we talked about the hegemony, then of course the U.S., China, in 20 years maybe India, Russia, they have potential to be such a strong uh, country in the world because just they have the size, they have the, the number of people, they have the economy or might have one day. Uh, so in fact, they won't be part of such an alliance. But if we have, I don't know, let's say 20 alliances around the world and they all are nearly as strong as the other ones, they might also find a way to come together. And now I'm not, not a historian, but if we think about Europe, uh, Europe's development, there were the small European countries, even in Germany, I don't know, Uh, some of you might know the exact number, but certainly, I don't know, let's say more than 30 small states in Germany and they needed to develop a way so that they could talk eye to eye or they integrated into each other be because they saw benefits, etc. So it took a long time uh, to on that road, but I don't have the feeling too much that this is where uh, the global society is going now or at least I don't see any discussions on, on a global scale. And of course, this always locally, because you can't implement this for, for someone. Uh, but I, I, uh, I would be curious to find such negotiations in, in, in other regions of the world, because I think that would be a step forward towards really a world where we can look at one person and see it's a person like me and you, uh, so. Well, what I think is uh, really important to that, just to add into your point, uh, is what would be the first step for me uh, is to find a plat like a platform where the countries or the national interests could be discussed. Like, what what do you think? What would be a good platform for these countries to come together? Because they sort of need a reason. If you look at the development of the EU, it started as the Cola and uh, something agreement, which was basically just the economic platform of mining coal. And uh, I think it's really hard for these countries, or I think that's kind of key to find a platform that could be used as a point where countries could come together. And I think these are really hard to find. Uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find because there should be always some common interest with your neighbors uh, and of course there's also always more potential for conflict with your neighbors and uh, and 
it's a long-term vision and I would, I'm not sure in how far once people in both the steel and coal coalition, they thought about having the European Union as we have it today. I think they didn't and maybe one or two already thought about such ideas, but uh, it's, it's one step after the other. Maybe it's not as hard as I made it out to be uh, to find the uh, common ground, but uh, what would be an incentive for uh, people to think beyond that? Uh, because the way we pathed out this vision, it took quite some time and we come from uh, a background where this kind of vision was implemented and it worked to a certain extent. And I think then it, it's necessary to spread that vision and uh, to find incentives for people to work together like that. And I don't know if that's really easy or I don't know what the West, let's put it this way, I don't know what the best way would be to yeah, create incentives for these people or these countries. Aren't there already other like unions also on a political basis in the world? Like if we see the economic community of Western African states, um, we do have kind of a situation which is maybe comparable to the EU on certain levels. Like there's a couple of states which are very bound to each other Uh, due to economical reasons, uh, for example, uh, for trade measures, etc. And they also do have a strong security policy. Like I remember in 2017, I think it was, where the situation in the Gambia was, where the elected president um, was like kind of reinstalled by the members of the, or by other members of ECOWAS due to their military force. I think it's a little bit comparable to what the European Union is maybe still aiming at, namely the enforcement of human rights, etc. I'm certain that on many, in many regions and on many levels, there are cooperation or cooperations like this. Uh, and of course, they all, all develop in a different way. And it's uh, maybe one of our Or one way to improve things is to research such projects um, because then we can compare and we can see what things are working from our Eurocentrical uh, perspective. We could always, firstly, the better the EU works, others will also realize this is a good project. And also, if we want to have a more equal world, it's also a step that the stronger one sometimes gives more than they take. So if, for example, let, let's take the Western African countries, uh, I'm not certain, but it might be the case that the European Union is still economically and also politically stronger. But to support such projects, we work together and try to put our interests, or at least put them in a perspective with the interests of the others. You, you could even say, take our interests a step back, but I don't know how realistic that, that, that would be for, for, for now. I think if we see the debate about the vaccines um, and the behavior of countries and also of the European Union, I think there is no state and no union which is at the moment 
willing to step back a little bit. Well, I adding to that uh, example, I think that there is basically one union which is doing it, which would be the European Union, not to blow the European Union's horn here, but uh, I think they are the only, or as far as I know, they're the only country in which, uh, or the, let's say, the only uh, geopolitical area in which vac vaccines get produced that also allows the export of these vaccines, because as far as I know, Great Britain and the US as an example, the, all the vaccine that's produced inside the great inside Great Britain and the US uh, is also staying in the US and Great Britain. And I think Russia and China, for example, are also uh, exporting the vaccines that are produced there. So, I, I, with uh, and they are mainly sharing them with the third world, as far as I know. Or, for example, Hungary also ordered some of the vaccines there. So I think it is happening. I'm just not sure if the uh, intention behind it is to uh, put the own interests a step back, but then rather than uh, to uh, implement own economical interests. I mean, so. Certainly many countries uh, export vaccines and there are also global organizations like I think Garvey and I think Covavax that organized by all the G7, G20, by the UN to also vaccinate in countries where access is difficult, where people or governments don't have money to pay. Um, so there are, of course, uh, projects also on that level. Question is always for which reason? And, and now a, a pandemic, there's old, always also a reason if, if not the whole world is vaccinated, then the pandemic comes back in, in some other way. So there's always also self-interest and this might be okay but thinking with Kant is always uh, to have the right reason also. So do things for the right reason. Um, and at least from how the European Union wants to put itself or wanted to put itself before, let's say, the Arabic Spring, we saw that those reasons they give to themselves are not always uh, kept and 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 I understand it's hard, and it's also part of democracy that it's hard because why one single person in Germany should think that its interest should be less important than interest somewhere else. Uh, however, I would like if everyone realizes that uh, own interests, at least when they are nearly all fulfilled, are not as important as interests from someone who is really in need of help or in need of opportunities at least. Um, yeah, I think that's one way of uh, getting people to step back their own interests, but I think would be also another good way is if it would be possible to outline this uh, global goal and the, basically the global benefit each individual would have by uh, helping others as in the long term, as contradictory as it sounds. Uh, I think that could also be a really good way to spark the idea of uh, putting your own interest for the moment back. But it also, the problem with that, it also sparks the idea that you only do things 
now or you only step back now if you get a big return later, which is uh, not as good, but I think that could be a kind of way to get a lot of people on board. It's okay for everyone. The first transatlantic conversation podcast and we'll see how people want to listen to it or not. Dann Dann ich auch schönen Abend. Ich auch schönen Abend. Ciao. Ciao. Tschüss zusammen.